0: Welcome to Record Roulette. My name is Eamon O'Flynn. I'm here with Nathan Smith to discuss another album from the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list that we've chosen at random. This week we have the brilliant, funny, and knowledgeable Gabe Pollock as our guest. I bet you didn't think I was going to to give I'll you those it. words, I'll those take accolades. I'll
1: take brilliant, I... funny, and knowledgeable. Those are, those are three of the nicer words you've used to describe me in our, in our
0: time knowing each other. I would say they're the three nicest words (laughs) I've used. Some terrible words. (laughs) Yeah, there's some really terrible ones I've used. (laughs) Describe you in the past cannot be said here.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, You may remember Gabe if you're listening at home from episodes about uh, Laura Nero and David Bowie, which are among my favorite episodes, and I love those love those albums. Put you on the spot, Gabe. Have you re-listened to any of those or to either of those since the? Have either of them stuck with you in any meaningful way?
1: To those albums, you mean? Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think actually both of them. I mean, I think Laura Nero has kind of entered into my semi-regular rotation. It's just a really, like, just got a really lovely voice and really pleasant to listen to. And I always love listening to David Bowie. So, so yeah, that's, I think both of them really have. Those were both interesting albums and good choices.
0: When you think of the 1960s British Invasion, the first group everyone thinks of is... The Beatles. After that, it's probably Rolling Stones. Then maybe The Who, in a distant fifth or sixth or seventh, is The Kinks, which is criminal because they are incredible and I love them. What they did so well wasn't always splashy, even if the brothers at the core of the band were proto-Gallagher wild men. I think today's album captures a lot of what makes them so unique, even during the massive explosion of creativity that happened in the 1960s. We're talking about The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society, which is number one on our list of longest album titles, but number 384 on the Rolling Stone Five rank Greatest Albums list. <laughs> I know, Gabe, that you uh, didn't really know this album uh, that well before listening to it for the show. Are you a That's convert? Or are you going to make me regret inviting you to the show? Um,
1: yeah, I, I really enjoyed this album a lot. I think my kinks knowledge leading up to this was kind of, I don't know a few uh basic hits um but yeah, I thought that this album was you know when you were talking about brilliant and funny in a way, I thought that you were talking about this album because uh it is it's witty and strange and silly and uh really really appealed to me
0: and it's it's interesting that it's it's very different from basically all those other groups that i I mentioned like there's there's very few connections yeah. I think to any of those those other groups. Uh, i know that you liked this album before listening to it again for the show nathan did it hold up
2: yeah it did it did hold up um like you i love the kinks uh this uh, and i like this album but relative to other kinks albums just as i'm looking through their discography like i'm not sure that this album for me is even a top five kinks album like i'm not saying it's Mm -hmm their worst album or in the in the bottom part of the top 10 but I think I could comfortably go with at least four and maybe five other Kinks albums I like better than this one. This is still a good one because again I love the Kinks. I think they're a great group and this is another really good album but I've always sort of felt this album is a bit overrated when it cuz it's sort of the standard bearer for the Kinks when people sort of say the Kinks are a great band and this is their this is their mm-hmm. kind of their album. Like it's it's their uh, Tommy or their Sergeant Pepper. Like this is the one that people always hold up and it's never really felt that way or sounded that way to me. And listening to it again, uh, that opinion um, didn't really waver. Okay. All right. Well, I think I can figure out a way of muting Nathan for the rest of this
0: episode. <laughs> uh, just give me kinks. entertainment.
2: Just try to balance out the love perhaps for this album in particular.
0: Yeah. Because this is, this is probably, I think this is my favorite kinks album. Before all, before we recorded this episode, uh, a few hours ago, Nathan sent me a message. I think it was a few hours ago, or was it a few days ago? Don't know. Time time has no meaning nowadays. It was definitely a few days you, ago. <laughs> I can't say whether a it was yesterday ago? or two days ago,
2: but it was definitely more than hours. So
0: okay, <laughs> well, Time has no meaning. Um, I uh you mentioned that you thought that the production was really bad uh on this album. You said something about like the the sound. Do, do you want to kind of elaborate on that and then that we'll use that to kick off. I suppose so. I have to otherwise where are
2: we going to go? But uh well, yeah, I, there's nowhere to go I, with this you've album. really boxed me in. Um <laughs> no cool. and I like I always has it? I mean, as we've said multiple times throughout this series, like I'm not a musicologist, I'm not an expert in engines, so I always hesitate to say something snobby like the production was really poor. So I use that term um and, and that kind of uh, assessment sparingly. But I, I do think that on this album in particular, for me, and I think for a lot of other people with sort of you know ordinary music ears, it just, it's, it's. Just it sounds very amateur and not by design, where they're kind of going for a garage rock sound and it should be gritty and and kind of you know a little bit messy like it's just the vocals even are very they're modulated and they sound distorted at times like a lot of these songs and some are better than others, but on the whole, I think a lot of these sort of sound like demos that they recorded largely themselves, if they were sort of given free reign in the studios without a professional engineer or or a producer to kind of just set mm-hmm. the basic levels and, and and get the EQ right. And then beyond that, like I just think the arrangements and I know that they're trying to be acoustic and not be, you know, like you really got me and they're they're kind of pulling back a bit, but they just sound really thin. Like I I don't need aggressive Kind of Who style British music all the time, but if you even if you listen to the Beach Boys or the Beatles, like those are really intricate arrangements where the individual instruments, despite the fact it's not you know heavy bass and guitar and and you know stomp boxes, those instruments still cut through and they still sound really really well recorded. And here it's all very thin and kind of tinny, and I just think it t- it takes away from the songs because the songs themselves are great, the lyrics are fantastic, but I, I just have a really Tough time getting past some of the production on on some of these songs
1: I found the exact same thing actually hmm. like I thought uh i mean it's it, i i am in a similar boat where i'm I'm not an expert in these things, and I also want to give it a certain amount of of wiggle room for for being an older album and for technological uh constraints and all of that but yeah, I found it was uh the sound was often kind of pretty flat and muddy um which you know, I, I'm I'm not certain of of how much how much there is in the arrangements, but but it is kind of hard to to hear what's coming through, um, and especially even when you compare to like albums that were recorded around the same time. When you compare to like Sgt. Pepper's, which is the same year, and
0: yeah, which is uh, so the,
1: complex and interesting. Um, I,
0: I believe the White Album came out the same day. <laughs> wow. Yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> literally comes out the exact same day. So i I think you know it's interesting that you hit on the point of almost amateurishness, and I don't want to hit hit uh, Ray Davies too hard because um, he hits back, but uh, when you least expect it, that 80 year old man will jump out. Um, They're often but the most the,
2: dangerous people you can come across in my <laughs> experience, so <laughs> taking nothing away but from the, that generation.
0: This is the first album that he produced himself. They didn't. uh, They got rid of the producer, the person who had been producing their earlier albums. So it was the first album that he produced himself. I've kind of wavered back and forth how like how much I think this was purposeful and how much I think this was amateur. And I don't I actually don't know where I land on that. Uh, Like I can give you a couple of examples. So. They wanted to get a kind of like music hall sound, like a lot of a lot of this, a lot of this music on here. The thing that makes the Kinks so interesting at this exact moment is their kind of pursuit of traditional English sounds. When you have all these other bands going after the blues and R&B and kind of pop music, things that they had been hearing from the United States and the Kinks, who had been banned from the United States a couple of years earlier, uh, could no longer tour there were had turned into this idea of let's try and create things that are English. And so they were a really early band to be using their accents and, and that sort of thing. So if they were going for like a 1950s kind of music hall sound and they wanted it to kind of feel a little bit grainy, I, that would make sense. But I also know that their like their record label was super cheap and just didn't want to pay for things. And and so there's this like, well, OK, well, so they didn't want to pay for things, but they, you know, I guess you could say they are trying to do this, but the producer was a first time producer, no matter how great uh, of an artist Ray Davies is. It kind of I, I go back and forth with like, did they try to do this or did they not try to do this? Uh, a lot of the commentaries like Ray purposely put the. You know the the heavier stuff, the the bass and the drums, further back in the mix, so that it was it didn't overpower anything.
2: He might uh, have, and and I'll, I'll leave room for that. But similar yeah. to what Gabe said, um, you know, you, you're you're trying to sort of build in all of these qualifiers so you know did they mm-hmm. it, it, was it the era was it the equipment was it the technology and all the rest of it but I think the other sort of clue for me is looking at how their sound evolved after this album and I don't know if Ray yeah. Davies was the sole producer afterwards but it still has this this sort of marks in a way the beginning of that I guess uh, volume two of the Kink sound where they really become the kinks as I think most of us know and, and love them um, and and the sound and the production at least to zero in on that, improves quite a bit, even with. I think Arthur was the next album. And it's the same kind of general sound and the same kinds of songs that are very English and and overtly British, but it's just a better produced album and they continue to get better despite the fact the sound itself is similar. So I just think that uh, it might have just been Ray Davies' You know, he'd never done it before. He didn't particularly care about the the technical side of things. He might have had some vague notion of how he wanted it to sound, but it's a completely different discipline to try to get the technical side of how to properly record instruments and mix them and and yeah. EQ them. So he might have just been in over his head. Did you have anything you wanted to to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think we've we've largely covered that side of it. I'll, the other thing I'll say is I did. Uh, primarily, I was listening to the 2018 remaster, which is what's on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, I also sought out just trying to like see if there's, if there's different versions and what the difference was. So, found a version on YouTube on the Kinks official, uh, YouTube channel. And like YouTube never has the best sound fidelity. Um, but it was a, it was an earlier mix. Uh, it seemed to be maybe the, uh, original CD mix or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and it's interesting. Talking about uh the bass being pulled back because that was really that was one of the main things I found is like, like it's it's so trebly, so tinny. And uh in the earlier recording there was more bass actually. It seems like in the twenty eighteen mm-hmm. remaster they've they've pulled it back even more. That's interesting. Um, hmm. So it does at that point start to seem more like aesthetic choice than, than anything else. Um, yeah. and I think, you know, it it's worth noting this is an album with pretty interesting instrumentation. You know, it's going for this this classic uh British thing and there's there's kind of flutes or or, or simulated flutes, some mm-hmm. harpsichord, and these are in, instruments that are quite light and quite quite uh flitty, you know, very very uh very trebly. Um so it, it does kind of fit in a way with that of, of trying to go for something uh, it's the opposite of this kind of grungier, heavier sound that's starting to come out.
0: Yeah, that's um, you mentioned the um, try the the sounds of flutes because they didn't have flutes because again they, the the uh, record label was too cheap to pay for uh, string or brass sections because they saw arrangers and session players as expensive. Right. Uh, so it, they used a Mellotron, which is kind of like a it looks like a piano, but it has like it can be programmed with the sounds of uh, of different instruments. So on sitting by the riverside, the accordion sound is Mellotron, phenomenal cat. It the flute is the Mellotron. And to your point about the heavier sounds, like right around this time you had the Beatles with Helter Skelter, you have Hendrix coming out, you have the doors coming out. Like to go the exact opposite direction here um, is is interesting. And yeah, whether or not it's like purposeful or, or not. The very last episode we talked uh, we talked about Bruce Springsteen purposefully being really you know quiet and scratchy and and all of that so it's hard to just toss that out and say there's no possibility they they wanted this one review called this a bad copy of the beatles what do you guys make of that does that actually does does it
2: sound like the beatles at all it i don't think so i think it it might sound like what somebody who's never heard the beatles thinks the beatles might sound like (laughs) if that makes any sense i don't i don't think there's and i love the beatles the Beatles are my favorite band of all time. And I think the best band that has ever existed and ever will exist. But this to me doesn't really sound anything like the Beatles beyond, I don't know. I mean, they're really good songs, but they don't sound like Beatles songs and they're British. But beyond that, I don't see a lot of uh, similarities.
1: I'd agree with that. Yeah. Like apart from just very basic, the sound of the era and the, the general instrumentation and stuff, uh, I think it's pretty different. And I think it's pretty clear that, that they're going for something very different than, what the Beatles are going for they have very different kind of artistic ambitions like it, it, that that just doesn't doesn't really a whole way for me
0: yeah that's I, I feel the same way I mean the, like I said the, the White Album comes out on the exact same day so if you're thinking about a similar era for Beatles they're not trying to do anything the same but it doesn't sound like Revolver or Sgt. Pepper or Rubber Soul either and they're the they're the ones that come right before that so yeah it doesn't really make sense to me the one other thing that's kind of related to sound quality, because uh, Nathan, you said something a few days ago. It sounds like yes uh, about about the vocals, and uh, is that uh, Ray Ray double tracked his his vocals as as well? Which is kind of funny because you'd said that John when John Lennon does it, it's it's wonderful. When Ray Davies does it, for some reason, it, it
2: became worse.
0: <laughs> worse vocal,
2: yeah. Yeah, I, well, I I don't know. I'm I'm I mean Freddie Mercury would double track his vocals a lot too on Queen, and he and it's it's a thing where it's really hit and miss. And I think for for Ray Davies, and in part because I think he has a I mean his 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 vocal sound sort of goes with the overall sound. Like his vocals are very thin, which I don't mind. But I think when he tries to double track them, it just sounds. And I again I think the vocals are really over modulated in a lot of areas. So when you're double tracking those, it it sounds even worse. So but. the 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 double tracking the vocals was sort of the least of my concerns with the overall production I'll say yeah what what did you think of his uh, his vocals Gabe because I think this is
0: if you if you had a very limited knowledge of the Kinks there's a good chance you've you've heard you really got me and Mm -hmm. Lola which you know very different sound to this so he's so much more subdued here
1: absolutely yeah I mean it really it goes very much with the overall aesthetic of the album and the overall kind of like Pastoral and light and pleasant and nostalgic and these kind of mood that's going forth, so I thought it fit really well, and it does kind of it it impressed me in that way because I am familiar with him doing a, a kind of much more loud powerhousey style, and the fact that that he can pull it back and knows to do it when it when it makes sense is is kind of is quite impressive yeah. um and yeah, i mean overall i I thought it was a very just on it it's purely uh on the sound of it i, I think it's a very pleasant uh the, these songs are very pretty very pleasant like i think he really does capture that kind of that warm some of them almost feel like children's songs i mean mm-hmm. especially when they're talking about like a cat a, a cat or a witch <laughs> um these are are kind of like uh yeah light nostalgic tales and, and i think he, he he plays that role very well
0: As soon as you said Children's, I I immediately Phenomenal Cat, the sound, the opening of Phenomenal Cat popped into my head. And I was like, yep, that's the one
1: Uh, Wants to to, travel the world.
0: This wants to travel. So funny story about Phenomenal Cat. I'll skip doing this down. I wasn't sure if I was going to say this during the lyrics. But there are people who think that Phenomenal Cat is actually a criticism of uh, George Harrison and George Harrison's ilk. Because it is about a cat who travels the world and learns the meaning of life, and then comes back and is lives fat and happy for the rest of his life, um, while while basically sitting on that knowledge. And uh, and people like well, and and people have suggested that Ray Davies was kind of looking at, at George Harrison, the Beatles, having traveled to India and and say you know brought that back, and especially George though, especially George with his kind of you know, like I've seen the world and now I understand how things are supposed to be that kind of, that kind of talk and was just making fun of him.
1: There is kind of a potency in that song too, that I, I can't remember the exact lyric, but, but like you're referencing this lyric about like being fat and happy, but still everyone loves them. Mm-hmm. There is something kind of like, well, screw you. Why do we yeah. need to love you? You're, you're already getting rich off of us. So yeah. look, a little bit bourgeois too.
0: And, or, and it does uh, feel or,
1: like aristocratic kind
0: of yeah it yeah it feels partly like a, chi- a children's song as well because of the fact that it almost feels like it has a moral ba- built into it like it's not like just a song about thing that happened or something it's like there's something he's trying to to articulate something and i think it's funny that people have taken that i don't know if he's ever confirmed it but people have taken that to be a a, a jab at uh, at george the the thing that i remember when i first listened to the Kinks purposely, you know, like not just hearing one of their songs that's out there. The thing that really struck me was just how how hard they hit the English accent. It's like throughout this entire album, because I don't think it was super common at this point for them to to do this to let their accent slip through. The Beatles started doing it at the point where they were like, "We don't have to care anymore." And oh. the Kinks, said, oh, basically, were never at that point in the '60s. uh They kind of got semi-successful, but then. They didn't seem to care about success to the same degree, but when you, um, I don't know, it's so it's so emphasized at some time at some points that I can almost imagine Christopher Guest being directly inspired by uh, <laughs> by him saying, "Well, you know, yeah. like when putting together his character in Spinal Tap, like that's Nigel Tufnell <laughs> all over. Uh, every time, every time I hear that uh, that song, it sounds like Nigel Tufnell to me
1: and i do think kind of just britishness in general kind of pervades the album like starting with naming it after the village green which is just such a like wonderfully english concept um and and throughout the like i think it is kind of it's an album that's rec- like that is reckoning with britishness with with mm-hmm. englishness of with with what's happened to englishness with the kind of <sighs> I don't know. It, it's it's nostalgic for a very old image of it, but also very aware of of this kind of British society falling apart. You know, mm-hmm. um, this is an era in general that I always find really interesting. Like, uh, Eamon, I think one of the first things that we bonded over was was Monty Python, mm-hmm. and I think that this is very much of the same era of just like, yep. of of a balance between things being proper and nice and the way they should be and then something sick and twisted and rotten underneath it like i think those two forces happening at the same time are are what this album is is responding to
0: and that's like sitting by the riverside right it's a Ooh. dreamy scenario and then it go it becomes a nightmare scenario then it becomes a dream pastoral sitting yeah. by the riverside scenario again and, and it's
1: all like is this beautiful or is this just fake and ridiculous mm-hmm. and doesn't make sense in our like our, our how much are we just intentional anachronisms down yeah. to putting up this album when <laughs> the Beatles are putting up the white album? You
0: know, like, so We'll ask Nathan this first. What do you think the, so Gabe is, Gabe has obviously brought up the fact that, you know, there's a, there's an element of nostalgia here and there's kind of talking about this, this older England and there's this newer England coming in. But what do you think the actual statement is that he's trying to
2: make with this album? Oh boy, that's (laughs) a loaded question. I I, I
0: mean, and I I say that as someone who I've I've read a little bit about it, and there's a couple of quotes from Ray that are pretty definitive. But at the same time, as I was listening to it, it after when I read about it afterwards, I was like, "Oh, really?" Uh, Yeah, it it just it wasn't quite what I imagined.
2: I I I think that for the I I really like the Monty Python link. I'd never considered that, but I think that's spot on. So I think there's there's clearly some humor and some satire. Um, but I, as far as I can tell, like I, I interpret it and I always have, um, as a, as a sincere sort of love and, and desire to hold on to the past, especially at the time that it came out where everything is, you know, things are changing in, in such rapid succession, you know, culturally, musically, religiously, all over the place. And I think there's a certain desire to kind of hold on to the past. And I think it's sincere and I think, he might have been he might have been one of the few, especially sort of in the artistic realm, that was that was not embracing, you know, quote unquote the future with with open arms. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, let's rush headlong into this brave new world. And he's like, No, I kinda like there there's something here to 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 maintain and to save and to salvage kind of from the old England or the old ways. And again, I'm sure there's elements of humor mixed in there, but I think at its core, I think he's he's genuinely sincere about that desire to preserve uh you know, childhood and, and, and in his case, sort of a British uh, tradition.
0: Yeah. I, that's, you know, I, I thought, I certainly used to think that the album was, was more sarcastic uh, about nostalgia and tradition that it was, he he was mocking it, you know, um, we are the village green preservation society is as something that kind of making fun of people who are trying to preserve these things that there's so much about that song that can come off as, as that, but then I stumbled uh, upon the fact that he, uh, he, the song "Village Green" was apparently written following his disappointment at fa- after finding out that the beer at a pub was stored in a pressurized metal keg rather than a traditional wooden barrel. And not another later, one of those songs. Uh, yeah, exactly. How many times that he later, song
2: <laughs>
0: he stated that uh, the album expressed his love for traditional British things and his hope that they would persist. And he said, "I quote." I never go watch cricket anymore, but I like to know it's there. It's like not being able to read Eagle anymore. And it's bad for people to grow up and not know what a China cup is or a village green. In other words, I'd rather have the actual things here, not just pictures of things we used to have, which I think is very, a very definitive. It's very much what you were saying, Gabe, about this idea of, of saying there was something real back then
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's not here anymore
1: yeah but i do think it's also it's kind of interrogating this like it's very aware of of what like calling itself the preservation society like it's very much kind of interested in what this means to try and remember to try and put things into like the the you know, the, like a, there's a number of songs about about photography about mm-hmm. memory and like they're very explicitly like what does it mean to try and do this? And what, like, what are we preserving? What, what is lost by doing this? What is, is kept by it? Um, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's a complicated feeling. And, and then, yeah, then like, I also, the the initial, uh, my initial feeling was, was that it was all ironic. It was all kind of like mocking it, like that we're trying to preserve Donald duck and all of this. Um, but like, I, I was also thinking of of um, the Dear Remember Walter" song, which is which is this just very earnest song about like we used to have these dreams together, and where are you now? And like, there's no, there's no. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't feel any any separation from that. I didn't feel any like second layer onto that. I felt like I, I miss my friends. I miss what what we used to want. Um, yeah, yeah. It's very, this like, was. A nice
0: feeling it was interesting. I, I believe I remember this It was written at a time when he'd also moved out of the uh, village. I think it was the village that he had originally grown up in. Uh, he had been living in a house there and he and his family moved to a different place and he apparently immediately hated it. And, and it was just because it it didn't feel like his, his kind of village green, the small town that is within London. I I believe it's within the greater kind of London area, but, um, within London that he, he, it it was partly uh, driven by this kind of um, this experience of his own where he was like, I've now left this and I'm, I'm sad about it. It's not, I've now left that place. And I think that's why it's so powerful to me. This is what I meant by like, one of the reasons I love it so much, I think is not something that's necessarily just about the album or what you're hearing, but it's about your own experiences. You know, I, I came from a small town that I rarely visit it had a lot of characters and places that I there are equivalents. There is an equivalent. There are numerous equivalents to a Johnny Thunder or a Walter. There's plenty of people who I could say like that's basically my version of Walter. There's a there is you know a a village green esque kind of place in my hometown. It's you know at, at Christmas it's all the all the lights are lit up in this one small park in the middle of town and that kind of thing. And so like there's all these weird little things. And when I listen to this, that's kind of despite the fact that my childhood was thirty years after this album comes out, well, a little bit a little bit less, but almost thirty years after this album comes out, there's so many places where I can see connections myself that I think that it's it's easy to for me like I enjoy the album, but I'm worried, as I said last episode when Sonia was all about Nebraska. I said I was worried that I wouldn't be able to look at it as critically because I, I just personally love the album so much. So, is that the same for you, Nathan, with, uh, with London? It's got a village green, right?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's the reason I think it's relatable through the generations is that everybody, I think, regardless of where you're from or, or how literal you take it, there is change can be scary and nostalgia is an attractive thing. And and the past mm-hmm. can be too, or just the familiar can be too. And so when you're dealing with themes that broad and and by extension that vague, I think there's there's ways that are that are quite easy to to tap into and to identify with. And that's obviously I think at the foundation or at the core of, of this album in particular.
0: Uh forty minutes long, this passes the patented Nathan Smith album length test. Uh, but what do you guys think about the organization of the album or what's on the album? Is anything not fit in your opinion or does it, is it fine the way it is? Did anything kind of catch you by surprise, you know, a song that a uh, song or a couple of songs that you just didn't think fit with everything
2: else? i I feel that it's sort of, it really drops off. I find on the second half, like I think the first half is really, really strong. There's not really any weak song. It's just sort of one interesting quality song after another and then it's it's kind of hit and miss and spotty for the the final 20 minutes and i guess one of the upsides in a in a situation like that is that these songs are all roughly two to two and a half minutes so you never get stuck with a five minute clunker then you're into another one like so if you don't like it it's over pretty quickly but i just find that it's it's very inconsistent in the second half compared to the first half
0: what, what about you gabe
2: yeah
1: i think i mean I, I don't think that there's any particular song that stands out like i think i think it has kind of cultivated a specific style and, and it all kind of fits um i do think the album runs a bit long and that's partially because the songs are so short so it's it kind of makes its point at a certain point and like you are like that it's still going um mm-hmm. there are there are three or four songs about sitting out of the park um, <laughs>
0: That's what you do in a small town. (laughs) That's all there is.
1: I guess that's what small town life is like. It could also end earlier. (laughs) You're like, yeah, I'm ready for the next thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I, I really liked your point, uh, Nathan, about the first half there. Because listening to it, I've said this many times, listening to an album for record roulette is not like listening to an album when you're just sitting at home listening to an album, that you kind of think about it a little bit differently. I've listened to this thing, you know, many times many dozens of times and I've never thought about it quite the way I thought about it this time around. And yes, the second half to me dragged a bit. I also thought that wicked Annabella felt like a really weird outlier of the song. Cause it's so, it has these like elements of like psychedelic and like high, like or harder rock. It's actually also
2: not Ray Davies. It's actually his brother singing the song. They have very so, similar voices. It's tough. Sometimes there are times where I think it's Dave, Cause I know yeah. he's, he's, he was famous for, um, it was Death of a Clown, right? That was sort of his big yeah. hit single. And I'm like, Oh, that's Dave. It's like, Oh, no, that's Ray's voice. But yeah, they're, they're very tough to distinguish at times.
0: But that particular song to me has, has kind of felt like I, after I listened to it, um you know, the, the whole album, a whole bunch of times, so much of it sounds like that softer sound with a few exceptions but that particular song all of a sudden comes in with like a heavier bass sound and you know like some really weird kind of guitar stuff going on and a really kind of grungy vocal too it's just it seems strange uh can you guys tell me what your favorite song is on this album
2: nathan i'll start with you i gotta pull up the track list here um oh you're picking now okay. no no i'm not awesome. picking. i want to make sure i get it right because this is the two it's um Picture Book is up there, but I think I'm going to go with Last of the Steam-Powered Trains. I like, because it is sort of a, and I don't mind the sort of laid back, sort of lazy sound, but that one has a nice groove to it and a, a good kind of, it, it moves, it kind of swings a little bit, good lyrics, like the melody. Um, but Picture Book's really good too. I love the sort of guitar riff that that moves with the bass following it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, Last of the Steam-Powered Trains for me. And and that's a perfect
0: example of a song where, like you were saying, like we were saying before, that the music is actually really interesting. So it's, it almost does feel like it's a real mix issue because that, that song gives the feeling of a steam powered train. There's something about it. Absolutely. Every time I listened to it, I thought it was incredible the way that yeah. there's no, you know, like horn, there's no nothing that, that would sound, you know, like sounds like a steam, but it, there's just this, like, chugging. This, feeling of, <laughs> this chugging, this yeah, chugging. Yeah. Like this weird. And you know, so it's it's like there's a lot of interesting music happening here that it's that's being hidden in some cases. I think in some of the other songs maybe being hidden too far in the mix. Gabe, what about you, uh favorite song?
1: Um Well, I mentioned Do You Remember Walter earlier, which they kind of strike me as as kind of quite emotional, but one that I just get stuck in my head listening to this uh album is Johnny Thunder. Um mm-hmm. just really I, I mean the the kind of the, the, uh, I am a sucker for a like Baba Ba chorus for that kind of like anthemic sing along stuff. Uh, it's really great. Um, yeah, and it kind of felt, I don't know, it felt big in a way that, that a lot of the songs didn't. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed Johnny Thunder.
0: Um, for me, what it, about
1: I, you, Eamon?
0: Oh, yes, What's thank you for asking song? me. I didn't think anyone would ever ask me. No one has so far in this entire podcast, <laughs> not existence. to host
1: or anything.
0: <laughs> uh, for me, it's one of the ones with Village Green in the title. Uh, that really narrows I, it down. Yeah. Well, there's. Yeah, I know there's, there's several, uh, but the, I think it's just Village Green, and uh there's just something that's very strange, like very, I don't know, unique sounding about that song. That kind of like I don't know, harpsichordy kind of is that what that is? Like, it's very. His vocals are really interesting. I get that. You know, the pacing stuck in my head all the time. Oddly enough, it's not even necessarily like what he's saying so much as like the kind of weirdly halting way he's saying it. And I don't know, to me, it just really sticks out and then it sticks in my in my head. It's also uh, a song that's in the movie Hot Fuzz and uh, which is actually my first exposure to this album. I, don't, I didn't mention that before, but the very first exposure to this album is like half the songs on this album are on are are on the soundtrack of that movie. Oh, that does
1: make sense if and we're so, talking about like the weirdness in, in small towns.
0: It's it's yeah. You would almost would think that they came up with that movie from listening to this album and saying, Hey, can we do this? Can we make this a? can we make this album into a movie? But we'll put cops in it? Sure. But uh yeah. So anyway, that's
2: that's it. Um do you guys think this was a commercial success? Um I'm going to recuse myself because I believe I know the answer because I was doing some (laughs) reading. So I'm going to step away. Uh, It doesn't like to me, it
1: doesn't really feel like it because it is just so old timey at a time when when the new was so exciting. Um, I can imagine people kind of going against it.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's it did okay. It, it topped out at number forty-seven on the UK charts and achieved a single gold certification. I think in the UK. I don't think I don't think it did much in the United States, but th- it's odd because like I was saying before they were never massive sellers even before this. So they had two earlier albums that were in the top ten in the UK charts, but that was you know just barely. Like they didn't have a number one album or anything. They had a couple songs that did well, and and again this goes back to the record company that they. You know, Ray was constantly in a battle with the record company over which songs they were releasing as singles and what you know the choices that they were making because he wasn't always making those choices early on, at least. Uh, but what about critical reception? So people didn't like it all that much out in the wider world. But what uh, what about the nerds who were listening to it for every single note? What about them, Gabe? What do you think?
1: This feels like music for nerds. Um, yeah. I mean, as as kind of the the kind of concept, the of it, and all of that, and the the like very particular aesthetic, it, it does seem like something that the critics would go for.
2: What about you, Nathan? Um, I'm going to go the other way, and just because it sounds so different from everything else that was out at the time, that the critics might have been unkind because it wasn't pushing the envelope in the way that you would at that time kind of associate such uh, innovation with so I'm going to say that the critics were, were not overly kind to uh, to this album so they were
0: pretty positive they they were pretty positive oddly enough especially in the United States so they're okay in, in the UK oh. in the United States they like them even more which is odd because I don't think it sold extremely well or anything in the United States but um, Melody Maker said it was easily their best album which is interesting because I think something else is right before this that and is that's yeah often held as like possibly their best album Mm -hmm. uh nme was favorable thought and thought the title track could have been a number one if it'd been a single again they didn't like release the songs that you would expect i don't agree with
1: that yeah (laughs) it doesn't doesn't feel like a single
0: but maybe in 1968 i don't know with like weird stuff going on i don't know this swing and six i don't know swing and 60 is about village greens people were all about that
2: People In
0: love Donald Duck and <laughs> <laughs> Uh Robert Crisco at the Village Boys liked the progress their sound had made. And the Rolling Stone Review praised the lyrics for making a statement and said that, I quote, only genius could hit me so directly, destroy me, and rebuild so completely. Well, I didn't really feel that happening. I didn't feel like I was getting <laughs> destroyed and rebuilt. So I feel like they were taking a little bit of license there. Uh, Do you guys, do you guys see why this is on the list or do you agree with it being on the list? Um, Actually, you know what, Gabe, you're new to the, to the album. I think I've got ideas of what Nathan might say. What would you say? uh, Does this seem like something that should be in the, in the 500 greatest albums of all time?
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think it does kind of, uh, it captures, it it does have a pretty unique, uh, uh, sound and feel to it that then, I mean, uh, you know, I I I know that this album has has been pretty influential on some bands. Like, uh, I heard Blur really like that, and the moment I heard that, I was like, "Oh yeah, Park Life is just this thirty years later." Like it, there's still yeah, there's still British people kind of trying to trying to to reckon with that and trying to understand that kind of specific aesthetic, and uh, I think it captures that in a really in a really new way.
0: And then yeah. it helps them that they're from the '60s, they're white, they're men. Uh, yeah. statistically, I think they had a one-in-three chance of being on the list. because <laughs> of that. they're
1: going to be on the list.
0: <laughs> Nathan, what about you? they uh, straight,
1: right? Yeah. I can, I, I'm allowed to vote for them. They're straight.
2: <laughs> Dave Davies was not, but I don't know if people knew that at the time. Oh. So, Interesting. Bit have a Trojan horse entry into the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Into the list. Um, yeah. No, like so I, He
1: wasn't trying to force it down our throats, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um... No, well, I, I think it deserves to be on the list only because I think the Kinks deserve to be on the list and probably several times. But I've, as I said at the beginning, and I'll, I'll expand upon now, I've never understood why this album in particular is sort of the flag bearer for the Kinks. Because you mentioned it just a moment ago, Eamon, Something Else is a fantastic album. And that album, if, even if you're trying to establish uh, Kinks or the Village Green Preservation Society as their jumping off point where they became the Kinks, I think it's pretty apparent that they sort of did that on something else. That's when they really break away from the early kind of you know garage rock stuff that they did for the first three or four albums, and that's where they really become sort of overtly British. They're definitely distinct in their sound. So I don't buy the argument this is their, their album where they become the Kinks, and then I think there's several other albums afterwards that have demonstrably better songs from beginning to end. Um, the, the album that came immediately afterwards, Arthur or the decline and fall of the British empire, I think is a, is a much better album from beginning to end, uh, Lola versus power man and the, and the money go Round, Muswell Hillbillies was fan. Like they have all these other albums. So again, I, I'm, I'm glad that the, the kinks get recognition from critics and, and from some degree of the masses, but I've, I've never understood why this is the album that sort of held up as their pet sounds or their Sergeant Pepper or, or, or what have you.
1: And this is this is the only King's album on the list, is that
2: right? Uh, something else is also on on the okay. list. It's at it's
0: at four hundred and seventy nine. I want to say.
2: Well, that's good oh, to get two so, albums on there for a group that wasn't really given a lot of a, a lot of a shot in the U.S. That's borders on justice. Yeah. It,
0: it's interesting with them though because I think that unlike the Beatles who broke up, the Who that kind of didn't really comp- continue all that, uh, to, to the same degree after Keith moon's death, the rolling stones did kind of continue and continue moving. Like they did, the kinks continued to produce interesting new music for the next two and a half decades after this. Mm-hmm. And so there are some, there is some very good music in that they're a bit of an outlier in that way. And it doesn't always sound like this. It's, you know, I, I pointed out, I think, uh, when we did our Christmas bonus episode, the song Father Christmas, when I learned, you know, I didn't I didn't assume that was the kinks when I heard that song. And then when I looked it up and I was like, oh, what? Like, it kind of <laughs> sounds like Ray Davies's voice. But like, why would you expect the kinks to have a song that sounds like that? Uh, you know, it's it's strange. I, I think that, you know. You might be right about the British kind of turn happening before this, Nathan, because that that chronologically makes more sense in terms of when the album was released, you know, in relation to when they were banned from the United States. Uh, But I think this might be the the most like holistically, this is that we're trying to make a British, the British album as a as a British pop group. Yeah. And, you know, that makes it probably the most British part of the British invasion, you know, that. Being banned in the U.S. turned them, made them turn their own customs and traditions for inspiration at a in a time, or sorry, at a time and in a way that none of the other groups did. You know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who were were kind of going in a, in a more American influenced direction, and and they these guys are these outliers, and this is this is the most British of those British albums, I would think. Uh, but it's yeah it's just so strange to me it's really strange that it was released on the same day as the white album uh when i when i learned that i was this is a it doesn't stick out it's like the exact thing we've been talking about the production on that on the white album is so good and it's so varied and it's so interesting and you hear this and it can feel really monotone at times um that said, I I have a really tough time. I I think it should be on the list, but I you know I I would love to argue it should be farther up the list. That it should be, you know, in the top ten probably. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. But you know, it's I I don't I don't feel comfortable doing that because I know I'm 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 compromised by my own love of the album. One bad opinion. This one's just titled One Star. Worst kinks I ever heard. That's it by anonymous Amazon customer in twenty seventeen so yeah, they were quick, worst They're kinks I ever points. heard. <laughs> I saw that one, and I was like, I think that was maybe the only one star I actually had access to, but I just <laughs> thought the the clarity and the how concise they were was pretty impressive, so yeah, there's just something i the there's just something about them not putting i'd ever heard or i have ever heard it's just worst kinks i ever heard perfect would you recommend this to other people
2: uh nathan yes i would because it's still despite you know some of my uh criticisms it's still a, a really good album and they're a fantastic band that uh they're a band that I think most people have heard of, but I don't think a lot of people truly appreciate them. Like they know a few of the hits that like you mentioned the name and like you really, you really got me um, and Lola and maybe one or two others. But I think they're, they're just sort of a group that people think had a few good singles and then just, you know, went their separate ways. Mm-hmm. But they're a fantastic band with an incredibly deep catalog. And if somebody's never heard anything beyond those hits, I'd start them with this. And I think there'd be several songs on this that would open their ears and make them curious about what else is out there uh, from the kinks
0: it's interesting you putting it that way about the the singles and not necessarily albums it almost makes me think of someone like harry Nilsson too who had a couple of really big hits and were really well known but to me he's you listen to any of his albums and yeah. they're so interesting He was always doing something interesting
2: yeah they're albums they're not just you know here's this yep. hit single with a bunch of other junk like it's a fully realized album and the Kinks did that repeatedly what about you gabe would you recommend this to others
1: yeah i would i think that's that's a great point that nathan's making i think it is it's a very it's very distinct from uh from the kinks that the kind of introductory level kinks that many people know um which makes it kind of a, a interesting and exciting introduction and also just it's a fun listen it's just like it's enjoyable yeah. um yeah so absolutely yeah
0: we barely talked about the the lyrics like we didn't go into the into the depth with the humor but just really funny stuff i think he's he's underrated probably in the broader public uh for just how good of a lyricist he could be and yeah i've said this as one of my favorite albums so i'd be i'd have to be sick to say no i don't recommend it so yeah i recommend it to anyone it's a great album the lyrics are witty and fun the music is unique and catchy and i don't think you'll hear anything like it anywhere else that's all for today thank you as always to nathan and thanks to gabe for joining us once again check out record roulette on twitter instagram and facebook at rr music pod rate and review this podcast wherever you can subscribe on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or listen at record roulette music in this episode is from lemon music studio thank you for listening to record roulette until the next spin goodbye